from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just finished recording this week's show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including UK consumers using new money tools to cope with the cost of living. We talked about the opportunity to use open banking to help both consumers and providers understand affordability. JP Morgan Chase wants to disrupt the rent check. We discovered that none of our panellists ever use checks. But we also talked about the opportunity for JP Morgan to do more than just help landlords with payments by offering a variety of other services. And fraud cases turned into spooky stories. We talked about Simon Callow's partnership with NatWest to warn the British public about scams and frauds. And we also discovered that none of our panellists like horror movies. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as... On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stablecoins. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome to episode 678 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. First of all, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Moody, Strategy Director of Customer Experience at 11FS. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, I've got a bit of a, like, nervous pit in my stomach. Like, I'm trying to buy some Glastonbury tickets after we after we wrap doing this, and I'm just full of fear. Like, I just know it's going to go disastrously wrong. And I don't know why I'm broadcasting that to everyone that listens to the show, because I'll just have to come on and broadcast my failure <laughs> next time we record something. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous. So if that comes across in the recording, then please, please forgive me. They are very hard to get hold of, aren't they? Um, it's a FinTech Insider debut for Tej Kenny Okafor, Africa reporter for TechCrunch. Welcome, Tage. Great to have you here. Can you give us a little introduction to you and to your news beat at TechCrunch? Um, great to be here, too. Um, so, yeah, my name is Tage Kenner-Kafor. Um, you got the, the pronunciation is actually spot on. I'm impressed. Uh, so I report for TechCrunch concerning regarding African startups and venture capital. So I report unicorns, uh, unicorns, you know, what's happening in the fintech space. Because, I mean, I report most you know, about fintech because that's... Um, the most active region the sector in Africa. So fintech, logistics, edtech, health tech. I mean, general sectors, but like, um, mostly on fintech. So I also, you know, write about venture capital, investors looking into the African market, global investors, local investors, and how, you know, the capital they, they infuse into the ecosystem affects founders, affects other entrepreneurs, affects other um, investors, rather, and the general ecosystem. Fantastic. Such a dynamic continent. Well, welcome to the show. And we also have a debut on Fintech Insider News for Karina Seskana, Product uh, Marketing Lead at Yapoli. And I know I got your name slightly wrong. Um, welcome to the show, Karina. <laughs> Can you give our audience a brief introduction to you and to Yapoli, please? Sure, sure, sure. Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, huge fan of the show, by the way. Um, my name is Karina Siskena, and yes, as you said, I'm product marketing lead at Yapoli. Yapoli is an open banking infrastructure platform, um, and we're solving a fundamental problem that exists with financial services today, and that's access. Um, as you know, for years, car networks have monopolized the, the global movement of money, and banks have had the ownership and access to financial data. Well, we are completely redefining that, and we were founded on the premise to completely change that landscape, remove those barriers, and provide accessibility. And as a result, we hope to enable other companies to build better and fairer financial services powered by open banking. Very excited to be here on the show. Fantastic. Well, welcome to you both. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story was reported by Yahoo Finance, among other places, and it is that UK consumers are using new money tools to cope with the cost of living, or the rising cost of living. A large proportion of UK consumers have turned to financial tools like credit cards and overdrafts to help supplement their income amid cost of living pressures, according to a new survey by Yapoli. 
Almost 9 in 10 people said they have used money-saving or money-management products and services over the past year, Yapoli found. This includes more than two-thirds of people using bill management and credit score tracking, while 63% said they had started using budgeting apps. It comes amid reports that consumers are tightening their belts because of rising living costs. Major retailers have noted a decline in sales and reduced customer spending in recent months. Karina, great to have you here for this one. What made Yapali commission this research? Yeah, I mean, very timely research. I guess we all can agree. Um, the cost of living crisis is real. Unfortunately, we are living through this, and it's fundamentally changing the way us people and businesses move, manage, and uh, make most of their money. Um, as an open banking platform, we know the potential of this technology um, to then create more tailored financial products and services for everyone. So with our research, we wanted to make sure that we raise awareness of you know, these changing habits of consumers and businesses as a direct response to the to the economic crisis that we're living through. And we wanted to explore the role open banking plays into financial well-being to then provide these better products in the time of need. What were some of the most sort of important or surprising findings for, for you and your team from the research? Yeah, I think you highlighted already in some of the, in the opener, you know, some of the points that you brought across where, you know, we're building, we're starting to see that overall trend, which is that lack of understanding, awareness and implementation of open banking, um, despite, you know, rising demand for the tools and services it enables. So what our research showed is that, you know, nearly nine in 10 consumers and then three in four businesses in the UK have used financial products and services in the last 12 months to then help to tackle the cost of living crisis. But what's interesting is that while 80% of the people feel confident that they understand the tools that are available for them to then help and manage those finances, the majority still have not heard about open banking. Well, I know we're going to talk about Bit about open banking awareness uh, about that in a second. But what I wanted to kind of pause a little bit on is zoom in on that, uh, on the credit aspect for a moment. You know, with Bank of England rising the interest rate to 3%, um, we're seeing the biggest hike for three decades. Um, it's probably going to set us on a path for recession for the next two years or so. And that's going to be probably the longest recession we're going to have on record, right? Um, so that means that the cost of borrowing is going to increase. And obviously, the cost of living is going to continue to squeeze people's pockets, right? So our research show that over a third of consumers have started to using credit scores, tracking tools for the first time in 12 months. And then 36%, which I find really interesting, 36% have started using credit cards for the first time to then supplement their income. So What's more is when we dig into the data and just the overall context of what's currently happening, the legacy credit scoring systems continue to prevent the credit-worthy borrowers from accessing affordable finance. Um, there was a research conducted by Experian show that over 5 million people in the UK are so-called credit invisibles. So that means that they have little to no credit history. And if you consider that amount of people and the current economic climate, you know, that is a definitely scary situation to find yourself in. Um, definitely. But, you know, again, at the same time, there is, you know, there, there are more financial products that are trying to definitely tackle these kind of credit invisibles. And some of the great examples we're seeing is, um, you know, credit card provider Yonder, for instance, they use open banking to carry out that risk assessment and affordability. So in action, what that means is, with the consumer's consent, which is at the heart of what open banking does, uh, Yonder would be, you know, Kate, maybe taking your financial information, trying to understand what would be your affordability, and then issue a loan, which would be, you know, tailored to your specific uh, situation. So, you know, that, again, in turn, would help you build a credit record from scratch and then participate in the current economy, you know, reap the benefits of maybe rewards programs or with all the good stuff that Yonder has. You know, again, it kind of goes back to, how can we make sure that as we go through this crisis, what are the tools and products that we can use to help everyone, not only the selective few? Kate, I'd love to bring you in because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about sort of financial well-being and the cost of living crisis. Um, are there sort of good and bad ways for, for customers to, to deal with, you know, pressure on their finances? You know, li you know listening to you talking about, you know, rising credit card debt, I'm sort of thinking, oh, is that good? Kate, well, what's your thoughts? 
I mean, I think we've got such a wide variety of different credit products in the market. Now, obviously, we've had credit cards, we've had overdrafts for, for ages. Now we've got buy now, pay later. And as you know, um, Karina's touched on, we've got some of these fintechs now, which are starting to offer credit to people that wouldn't have had access to it before. So I suppose the good part of this is that there is a variety of choice now and we kind of give people people have options to maybe try and hopefully have the chance of finding things which are better suited to their their needs but i think that becomes very confusing for for consumers like having a, a variety of different options i think you know, even though as karina said lots of people in the in the survey data sort of feel like they have an understanding um we still see lots of examples of people using these these financial products in ways which you really aren't confident are going to be positive in the long run. I think we've seen lots of analysis coming out now about the increasing use of buy now, pay later for like grocery purchases, for example. And that terrifies me. You know, I'm an absolute sucker for delivery. But when I go into delivery and see Klarna being like pushed on the pushed on the pay options, like that, that that frightens me. You know, I don't think that's the kind of way in which this this credit was designed to be used. You know, buy now, pay later was designed to help wash it. I think has really, really positive applications when it helps people to break down big costs over over time like we know that um poorer communities face kind of poverty premiums because they can't afford to buy big items up front and end up paying extra to to buy them in installments so buy now pay later could potentially be a really good thing if people are using it in that way but um yeah really it's about making sure that people understand kind of how different credit products work. And I think also kind of making sure that people maintain visibility of the credit they have in different places. It can become so easy for it to spiral when you've got a credit card in one place, an overdraft in another, buy now, pay later across two, three providers. Um, all of these things are really difficult for people to keep keep track of at the moment. Um, even when we've got better open banking platforms, you know, it still doesn't capture all of that in most cases. I was going to ask you, Karina, can I, how much does open banking help people sort of get a better picture of, of what they can afford, of their debt situation? Or, or how much does it help, um, you know, lenders act responsibly by sort of getting a, a view of, of what debt someone already has? Is, is that something you're seeing, you know, your, your partners using? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's definitely safe to say that um, open banking is such a versatile technology and particularly being able to give lenders the access to the data to then make better informed decisions in terms of uncovering new segments of the market that would be underserved completely as in credit invisibles or being able to provide more tailored and targeted products for those customers. And I think at the end of the day, it goes back to, I think what you, Kate, mentioned, you know, it's, it's, there are great products out there powered by, by open banking or not. It's at the end of the day, it's the education that needs to always tie into this is, is this the right product for me? And understanding what your, what your needs are and what open banking allows you to do is it really open banking is at the, uh, the customer is at the heart of open banking, right? So it's the, the consumer that c- gives consent. It would be my data that would be used to def- you know, determine my affordability or risk assessment, whether I can, I would default on the loan or not. And it's definitely that point of how can we build the products that are working for you rather than trying to sort of squeeze you into the box that doesn't necessarily work for you and it actually could backfire in the long term and you might default on something that you weren't even fit for the, in, in, the, in the first place. Tage, I'd love to bring you into the conversation at this point. I mean, we, the three of us are sitting here talking about, um, you know, the cost of living crisis in a relatively wealthy country. And obviously, your your newsbeat covers lots of countries with people who have much lower um, average uh, income and earnings than, than, than people in the United Kingdom. Are you seeing fintechs in Africa sort of um, trying to help people in, in, in various different markets with, with the cost of living? Have you seen a response from um, African fintechs or African banks to the rising, uh, rising fuel and other costs? So to be honest with you, I, I don't think so, like um, generally speaking. I stay in Lagos, Nigeria, so I, I can't really see for the rest of Africa. But from my point of view, where I live in Lagos, I mean, the cost of living keeps increasing. You know, rents um, keep you know, skyrocketing, the cost of fuel, and all that. So the, the fintechs we have, what they try to do, I mean, some of them help, you know, Nigerians to save money, right, to facilitate transfers between, you know, one bank to another. Um, they also help, like, you know, give credit, right? But in a general scheme of things, I don't see how they, you know, translate to helping people move uh, with their cost of, with the cost of living crisis happening in, in the country, right? So 
I don't think we have that yet in terms of, you know, how fintechs are trying to help, you know, people pay their rent better or pay their rent faster or just help them, you know, with the general crisis you know, when it comes to, like, you know, living in, in the country. So right now, I, I don't see that happening yet, probably in the next few years, right? But the fintechs we have are probably solving, solving all the problems that don't really translate to how, you know, um, to affecting people, you know, general cost of living. Yeah. Well, let's hope they, uh, they, they start finding some good ways to help people. Karina, last very quick question for you. Is, is there more that you think fintechs can do um, in, in Nigeria, in the UK? Um, is there more that they can do to help with the cost of living crisis? Um, absolutely. And I, I think, but I wouldn't want to single out fintechs, you know, fintechs on its own, right? There is, you know, if you think about, again, just with my open banking hat on, if you think about my industry, right, it's uh, open banking is a combination of, you know, consumers, businesses, regulators, banks, uh, you know, fintechs themselves. And that's just one side of the market. Yes, we can definitely do something to deliver financial products that could help. But that's only one part of the equation, right? We are in a, you know, in the world, there are other sort of industries that should definitely chip in and definitely government should play a very active role. Um, financial services can help to deal with the symptoms of what's currently happening, but it's not going to solve the crisis that we are currently in. So it's definitely a, a complete effort of the whole ecosystem and, and every participant to play a role in there. Personally, we're seeing financial services are definitely leading the charge. So we'd love to see other industries following the suit. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, if you want to learn more about what the cost of living crisis actually means and why financial services companies should be taking notice, go and check out Kate's 11FS Explores video over on our YouTube channel. All right, let's move on to our next story, which is that JP Morgan Chase wants to disrupt the rent check with its payments platform for landlords and tenants. This was reported in CNBC. JP Morgan is piloting a platform it created for US property owners and managers that automates the invoicing and receipt of online rent payments. According to JP Morgan's Chief Innovation Officer Sam Yen, the vast majority of rent payments are still done through checks. He added, If you talk to residents to this day, they often say the only reason I have a checkbook still is to pay my rent. The bank hopes to gain traction by offering users valuable insights through data and analytics, including how to set rent levels, where to make future investments, and even screening tenants, according to Yen. So where do we start? Why is America still so far behind when it comes to rent payments? Um, <laughs> Karina, you're from Estonia originally, if I'm correct. Did you Latvia, even, but not sorry, too far Latvia, off. I'm so not sorry, too far off. So embarrassing. Um, did you even have a checkbook when you were growing up? I mean, like in parts of <laughs> Europe, a checkbook. It's like, what is a checkbook? Uh, actually, I love the question. Never had a checkbook in Latvia. When I came to the UK and I opened up my first uh, bank account with Lloyd's, they gave me a checkbook. And that was that moment of that old money feel. You know, I've got a checkbook that I've never used, by the way. I think the first and only time I've ever held this was there and then in the bank. So I think the question is, maybe not wrong with rent payments in America. It's more so what's wrong with payments in America, which is probably worth another podcast episode in its own right. Um, so, so, Kate, how can such a valuable market as... Uh, landlords and renters be sort of so underserved and stuck in you know the sort of nineteenth century payment systems. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, I have, every time I hear news stories like this, I sort of initially don't believe don't believe what I'm hearing and instantly like message my friends who live in the US and say, like, "Is this actually true?" Um, but I, I guess yeah, people. I guess if people if, if consumers have just got used to something, then people do have actually quite a high tolerance level for doing doing things which seem a bit stupid and a bit ridiculous. Um, and I suppose American banks until quite recently have, have had a bit of a reputation for just carrying on with things because no one was really challenging them and it wasn't really a priority for them to fix it because it kind of worked. So I suppose um, I feel like we've seen some innovation in the US and maybe this is just kind of one of those things that was lower down the list um, and, and now they're finally getting to it. But yeah, I think it, it makes a huge amount of sense you know if you think about um the amount of a sort of inconvenience that's always what we're looking for you know, when we're designing new propositions in all parts of the world that's what we're looking for when we speak to consumers like where are you wasting time where are you wasting money where are things where is there friction in your financial life and to me this seems yeah like a really uh, interesting use case and i suppose for for jp 
P, I think what's interesting, obviously they've got this other play that they are making potentially in the travel space. So I wonder if they've almost kind of gone down the list of like, where are their sort of agency intermediary models that existed in the old world that were providing services for people that we could disrupt? Because you think about, you know, letting agencies and things like that, there's lots of um, there's lots of pain there, both for a renter and for a landlord. Like my my when I rented in London, the landlady I rented off when I before I moved out, he didn't use a letting agency because they took up so much, they took such large fees. And so I think again, there's you can see that there's an interesting opportunity space there for for technology if it's executed in the right way to to kind of provide some of those those services at a much lower cost uh, and therefore kind of potentially sort of disrupt the sector quite quite majorly so yeah i think it's an interesting thing for jp to be going for alongside this travel agency play as well i thought the um I, I agree. I agree that payments are very habitual. So you know, people do sort of stick with how they've how they've always done things. I think one of the really interesting things about this story is the way that their JP Morgan is trying to automate the invoicing and the receipt of the payments and trying to add in data and analytics. So they're trying to sort of layer in more intelligent services on top of it. Is that going to make a difference? Um, maybe a couple of points from from my side on this before maybe I answer your question directly. I think uh, maybe reflecting reflecting Kate what you mentioned. I think. It's a very interesting uh, market. I think it's hugely underserved, not only in the US, but definitely also in the UK. I think that speaks to some of the conversations we're definitely been having over more of a year, over a year now, when we are having these dialogue with prop tech companies that are looking for, that are actually finding use cases that they, you know, particularly looking at open banking to solve, whether that's be uh, with payment collection, tenant screening, establishing affordability, you know, all of that, again, come, kind of comes into that equation. How can I use technology to, you know, save time and, you know, save save costs, right? So it's definitely one of those, uh, one of those underserved and underlooked markets. Um, we're definitely seeing PropTech as this up-and-coming industry and, uh, and it's definitely turning to open banking for, you know, solutions and use cases that they found that uh, they could solve for. Tage, it's, it's interesting talking about the United States and talking about uh, check use. Um, how, do, how do people pay their rent in Nigeria? Because to, to many Europeans, checks are very outdated. Is that the case in Nigeria too? No, not at all. So actually we have, you know, quite um, a large prevailing use of checks in Nigeria. So I actually have a checkbook. I'm 25, <laughs> and I do have a checkbook. Yeah, but I mean, I don't use it for, for I mean, I just use it uh, in case I need it, right? Right, but I don't use it often to pay rent or anything. It's just um, one of those financial instruments that you keep just in case, you know, there's a need for it. So um, to pay rent, okay, you want to say something? Well, you mentioned your age, and I, I, I presume what you mean is that younger people like you don't tend to use checks, but maybe your parents' generation still does. Is that is that is that fair, or am I making an assumption? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you're spot on. Yeah, spot on. So it's it's kind of like a situation where I saw my parents use checkbook, and while opening my account, my first account, I opted to get one just in case I needed it. But so far, you know. I, I've not seen the use case for it, but yeah, my parents' generation, they still do. Uh, so right now we use bank transfers like with fintech apps or with, you know, um, so, some of these banks have mobile apps where you cannot actually facilitate um, bank transfers. Um, so that's what our generation use. So for, for rent, we also do that. And actually most of the time we pay for stuff, you know, with cash. You know, um, Nigeria and most of Africa still like heavily reliant on cash. So there is that 90% of the population or 90% of financial transactions happening in the country where, you know, um, the use of cash is still, you know, the number one um, feature. So to pay rent, you probably give cash to the landlord, for instance, or go to the bank over the counter to, you know, make some transfer. Okay, I see where you, you can use checks. Yeah, you can use checks about the, about the bank uh, over the counter. Or you can just transfer the money to his account, you know, from your account to his or to the landlord and landladies. Um, so there, for what JP Morgan is trying to do for the US, I, I don't think there's anything like that in Nigeria or Africa where, you know, trying to build a centralized you know, platform where people can, uh, a payments platform where people can pay, get invoicing and, and whatnot. So there are a few property companies where um, that are trying, okay, fun fact, actually, we pay our rent yearly, not monthly, in Nigeria. Ouch. Yeah. So that's, that. <laughs> there is that there. So you have, 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So there are a couple of PropTech um, trying to um, break into the market and, you know, make people pay monthly instead of yearly. So you're offering um, opportunities for people to pay monthly, quarterly, by, uh, and, and all that, and not pay yearly, essentially. I can imagine that's very, very popular because doing an annual rent payment is a huge amount of, of, of money for anyone, anyone to stand by. Um, Kate, let me bring you back in for the, sort of maybe the final question on this. What's the real prize here for JP Morgan? I mean, is this about payment processing for renters and landlords, or is the prize maybe lending to property owners? What do you think JP Morgan's sort of end goal might be here? I mean, I think you have to assume that the the lending is is of major interest to them, right? Because yeah, if you can become a trusted partner for some of these these uh, landlords that are trying to build up these these I mean, property property portfolios, then they, they're going to have the opportunity for multiple you know, multiple mortgages potentially, you know, good margins for for them there. Potentially also, you know, borrowing around you know maintenance and improvements, lots of things like that. So yeah, you can definitely see a a sizable, a sizable opportunity for them in, in the lending space. Um, but I'm also interested to see if they, obviously they're talking about offering quite a few other services as well. So we've talked about the analytics. Um, so, so it's be interesting to see what the what the model is that they deploy for that. You know, whether they try and make this a sort of paid platform for for landlords. Um, I guess it depends on on how much it helps. You know, I think they've sort of said that one of their aspirations is to help landlords work out how much rent they can charge their tenants so i suppose yeah if you if you build a sort of analytics capability that lets a landlord increase their their rent payments then i can imagine that could be very valuable although it's something that as someone who's paid extortionate rent in london for years i really don't think landlords need any help getting more money out of consumers like i'm not sure i'm not sure i want jp morgan to help landlords it doesn't really feel like they're solving a big social problem if that's kind of what they're driving at but i guess for landlords yeah it would be massively helpful all right well let's um let's keep an eye on this one and see what else jp morgan integrates into that platform because that's probably going to what it's going to really depend on is what else is there and to be useful for landlords and we have established that both of our guests have a checkbook that they don't use All right, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Money Fellows, an Egyptian fintech digitizing money circles, has raised $31 million in funding. And this was reported in TechCrunch. Egyptian fintech Money Fellows has raised $31 million in what it describes as the first close of its Series B investment. The round was led by Commerce Ventures, Middle East Venture Partners, and Arzan Venture Capital. Money Fellows' premise is the digitization of money circles, or what's commonly known as the Rotating Savings and Credit Association, or ROSCAS. This is a system where a group of people agree to contribute money for a specific period, thereby saving and borrowing together. According to Money Fellows, Roscas are a $700 billion opportunity globally and popular in over 90 emerging and developing markets under various localized names. By digitizing money circles, Money Fellows says it is helping users to broaden their potential pool of partners beyond the traditional group of close friends and family. Tage, this is your story, so let's come to you first on this. For those who are not familiar with them, what are Roscas? 
So how do I explain this? Yeah, you, you mentioned um, the acronym for Satan Savings and Credit Association, right? So let's say you, Benjamin, uh, Kate, Karina, and myself, um, we're trying to save money together. And let's say we have four months where we want to save money because, I mean, I probably want to save 40K dollars like each month so everyone gets a piece of it. So the first month from November, for instance, I bring 10K, Kate brings 10K, Benjamin brings 10K. And, you know, we, you know, the first 40K goes to Kate, for instance, right? So for that month, yeah, Kate is, you know, good and, <laughs> you know, she's flexing life and, you know, all that. Then for the second month, uh, we contribute again and Benjamin gets the second batch of the 40K. Then the third month, Karina gets the third batch of the 40K. <laughs> then yeah, I wait till I get you know the last one of it. So that's how Roscas are, right? So every um, you can do it weekly, or you can do it quarterly, you can do it monthly or yearly. No, actually, you can do no, not yearly, like quarterly, weekly, you know, uh, daily kind of stuff. So Roscas are kind of popular in emerging markets, in India, in Nigeria, you know, countries huge population, but they're still developing um, countries that don't have you know, solid banking systems or financial systems like the US or the UK, for instance, right? And is, it mo- is it mostly among families or friends or both? Um, does that vary by country? Actually, it's among friends and family because, I mean, you have to trust the people you're, you're, you're uh, yeah, giving money to, right? And, I mean, regardless, people still find a way to uh, default. You can trust family and friends, but, I mean... You, yeah, we're still humans, right? Yeah. So what what typically happens is that oh yeah, the family and friends circle is like the most trusted of your you know circles in life, right? And you can hold each other accountable. That oh, you must pay your 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 bits this month, right? To keep it um, going. So for instance, think about ten or fifty people in a roster like that, right? It's hard to keep track of you know uh, who's who is uh, going to pay, who is going, or if for instance someone doesn't pay. Right, it's hard to find the person and make the person accountable. So what 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 money fellows you know did or has done is, I mean, and for okay, first of all, I mean, we just made the um, example of you know getting forty k each month. What if I want four hundred k, right? And I mean, we have a very small circuit, and I don't have we don't have uh, the capacity to bring a hundred k, you know, um, monthly. So we have to expand that circuit to accommodate. 10 more people or, you know, 40 more people, right? That will each bring 10K each month. So what, was, uh, what, what Money Fellows has done is to um, digitize this process where you can actually contribute money with strangers, essentially. So now, um, when customers sign up on the platform, so they have a credit assessment thing, right, to, to find um, basically like open banking systems where, you know, uh, you submit your your financial statements, you know, check your credit worthiness, see if, you know, you've been active with your bank over the past couple of months and, you know, essentially have your details, right? So it's harder for you to, you know, default, right? And if you do, you probably be blacklisted on the on the platform so you can't lend or you can't get money, right? So for um, essentially, yeah, so that's what they've done and for for people who struggle to like get loans from the bank, right, which is quite common in developing markets, this is another avenue for them to save and actually to, to borrow money, right? So yeah, that's that's basically how you know money cycles or rascals work. Fantastic. Where where do you think these will be successful first? I mean, maybe I should ask uh, ask that to all of you because you, you were talking at stage earlier about um, you know checks and saying you know young younger Nigerians don't use checks. Um, is it going to be young people who adopt these first or are there particular purposes that, that people are, are using these for that are likely to be embraced first? Where 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 do we think this will be successful first? Mm, nice Christmas question. Shopping, uh, I think... Chipping in for Christmas shopping. I see that happening maybe in my family. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, I mean, for large expenses or out-of-the-box expenses you're not planning for, I mean, you can use something like this. Now, the traditional customers of uh, Money Fellows don't use it every month. Right, so like you know what Karina said, probably if you want to make some out of the box expense or 
um, something you didn't plan kind of budget for, you can just, you know, join a circle and start saving or contribute um, to, the, um, to the circle, wait for your turn when you get the money. You know, you kind of plan these things, for instance, if I want um, to have a uh, fun December, for instance, right? I can get into a roster that shows that I get paid on, you know, next month, right? Or if I have something in March, you know, a roster that ensures that I get paid uh, five months from now, right? So instances like, actually, I think it actually cuts across different um, demographic, like, you know, age-wise, right? So my parents' generation can use it. I can use it, although I've never participated in one, right? But I see myself using it if I have, like, an urgent, you know, financial decision you have to make. Kate, do you think this could take off globally? Do you think, can you see this working in, in lots of countries? A digital, a digital version, obviously. I mean, I, I think so. Yeah, I think if, if you can really get that experience right, because, yeah, I think as, as Tay just said, at the moment, there's versions of this all around the world. And it has different names and, and sort of, I suppose, maybe slightly different nuances to, to the mechanics of it. But it's a definitely, it's a really well-established concept, but it's a concept which, as, as Tay has also explained, like has difficulties and complexities to it like it's difficult to manage it's probably quite a big burden on somebody it's it's difficult to kind of keep track of all those pieces so you can see there being definitely an option at, uh, options for technology to help help improve that but then it's obviously very difficult for something which is so dependent on on trust and those human dynamics and those human relationships that's a massive design challenge and one that i'm fascinated by um like i i think it's super interesting to think about i mean obviously in the example that tage did i did very well because i got the money first which i was <laughs> delighted about but i mean i it's, i think that is really interesting like how do you decide who gets the money first because i can imagine this being a really really useful mechanic for somebody that needs a large lump sum quickly that they couldn't otherwise access you know, through their own resources unless they got quite a expensive personal loan um so i could imagine this being really really useful for that but i don't you know, to find somebody who's willing to sort of support that who's not going to get their money for 12 months or however long it is um is is kind of a very different a very interesting an interesting challenge and i think obviously the example that we're most familiar with here in the uk is is kind of the historical sort of cooperatives you know the the nationwide example of people sort of all putting their money into the pot to buy get their houses and things like that and i think something like that you can definitely see there being models for that and i'd love to see um this being explored in in the business world like i think it'll be amazing if if small businesses had mechanics to club together to to help kind of fund growth and things like that that would be really fascinating i'd love to see that but yeah very interesting angle um, Karina, you mentioned Christmas shopping, and obviously we were talking about the cost of living crisis earlier, and obviously a lot of families in you know, struggle to get the money together to have a really nice Christmas. Um, do you think people in sort of Europe and other you know developed markets need more of this, more borrowing from families and friends, or does that actually make family events like Christmas more stressful because <laughs> then there's more arguments over money? Is this something that we should be learning from other markets, or what do you think? I'm I'm personally actually very fascinated about this topic. I think culture and money, there's just so much to it that we need to recognize, right? And I think maybe specific to this story, what stood out for me was, you know, he tried to sort of set, um, strike, uh, strike, he tried to start it in the UK and Germany. Unfortunately, that didn't work and went back, back home in Egypt. And, you know, lo and behold, it kind of, uh, you, you find that product market fit, which then for me, um, that kind of shows that, the true understanding of that culture, uh, understanding of the context, and and uh, truly understanding how the product should work in that context for it to take off. I think in you know sort of North American Western society, we're very much kind of individualistic in 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 our ways, right? Whereas maybe the the some of the countries that were listed, the you know uh, he mentioned was it's more collective in nature. I think it's part of the the DNA and the fabric of the society. I think it's fascinating to learn from it, but I think it has got so much culture and so much tradition behind it it's very difficult to kind of one morning wake up and say you know let's start mm -hmm. our own kind of fund and because it's going to be great and we're going to figure it out probably admin wise you know we'll be able to do that but i don't think we can truly appreciate that you know maybe that that long history or that kind of context that really is very unique to different specific markets so i absolutely love that something like this exists i think it's fantastic i've done a bit of research as um just understanding what are some of the different cultures of money around the world and there's so many and they're fascinating right and and i think in the 
maybe in the Europe and uh, and Western part of the world, we've been kind of limited to, you know, to our own kind of set of traditions that are kind Mm -hmm. of universal. And I think we're maybe, uh, we should be, I think in my opinion, open to more cultures and the way of recognizing and dealing with money and uh, and learning different habits uh, from money, I think, from other cultures. Um, it's a fascinating subject. Okay, well, on that point about uh, learning more from other cultures, if you want to learn more about Egypt's fintech market, go and check out episode 629 of Fintech Insider, where Kate was joined by guests from Lucky and Include by Global Ventures. Okay, moving on to our next story. Um, An Uber alumni has raised $9.7 million to try and curb finance-related fights between co-parents. So sticking with this um, theme of of family finance. Onward, which is the financial platform for co-parents, announced that it has raised $9.7 million in Series A funding uh, led by TTV Capital. Onward claims to be the only fintech app designed to serve the needs of divorced and separated parents. The fintech has had nearly 100,000 installations from those seeking relief from the tense, unclear and often disorganized methods of managing money with their co-parent. Onward looks to reduce friction in communication for these co-parents and makes it easier to see who owes whom and pay each other back. The app also keeps a record of all expense history for children, pets and other shared expenses, which can be exported at any time. So this is a really interesting example, I think, of a, of a fintech trying to serve a particular sort of set of unserved needs. Obviously, this can be a very traumatic situation. It's obviously a very common situation where, you know, people, um, you know, their, their, their relationship falls apart. You know, you add in the stress of young children and, you know, um, it's an all too common experience for people. Um, Kate, do you think, what do you, what do you think of this story? Is this, is this a significant opportunity? Do you think an app can really help? What do you think? Um yeah, I mean, I, I really think, as you say, I think it's a really fascinating proposition. Obviously, there's sadly a lot of families which find themselves in this situation. Um, you know, I'm still still with my husband at this at the point of recording, <laughs> but as you say, as you say, having children is stressful. So, um, and I can imagine, as you say, that like once you are you know, managing that when you're not together, that's that's a really really difficult thing. And I, I know people from divorced. Uh, families, you have divorced in other parts of my family, it, it is very difficult and very complicated. And I think finding ways to try and neutralise some of these highly emotive conversations, I can imagine being really, really useful. But again, yeah, a highly difficult journey to to design. Um, I had a little stalk of, obviously, because they're so, you know, Series A, so it's quite quite early on but from what you can sort of see and what they've shared publicly they've got some really interesting components to their their interface so um you know they've got an example where you can sort of see you know, if you've requested requested payments from your co-parent you know what is the average time it takes them to pay you back which is kind of more of a sort of cash flow monitoring tool that you would see in a sort of small business app rather than in a sort of typical typical retail app so yeah, I think they're doing some really interesting things. Obviously, the the founder has herself come from come from this this family situation, so she obviously has a lot of lived experience of it. Um, and I'm sort of fascinated to see what they do next. Maybe quick point on this. I think when I read the story, my kind of initial reaction is: is this a product or a nice feature to maybe like a super app proposition? Um, you know, I think recently Revolut announced itself. You know, very much they they announced. Um, an instant messenger where you can kind of talk about money, essentially recognizing the same problem. How can uh, how can we help people sort of discuss and talk about prob- uh, about money without maybe the concept of co-parenting, right? It, uh, that's obviously more of that emotive um, uh, concept to add to this product. So my question is, is this really a standalone product in its own right? How are they going to expand what sort of um, what sort of other propositions they can add to this to make it more universal? Um, with therapy sessions for that, or you know, is it, how how do you how do you take it from there to kind of make it a lot more defensible product? I think it is my question. So I'm not I'm not convinced fully, but I think there is an opportunity for um, for expansion. There's one thing I do want to note is that personally, I felt that um, 
they don't necessarily sort of uncover a new segment. Uh, they are the same modern co-parent. They have a lot of financial products available at their disposal. It's just at that moment in time, which seems like this product kind of focuses on to help with that kind of co-parenting. And again, this is me talking about uh, without children and me and my partner has a cat. So I don't know if my if my opinion is even valid. I probably could look at Kate for for more of a sense check here. But I do think that there's a story, there's two sides to the story that is worth probably interrogating getting a little bit. And yeah, those are my two cents on that. I do think shared finances is a really important opportunity, you know, because there are so many scenarios where where two or more people are needing to share the management of, of some form of finances. I agree with you, this may end up be, being something that needs to be integrated into other apps, because there's so many other things you're doing. I think the other thing that strikes me here is Often the reason that tracking the money that needs to go to a, chil- a child or children or other things is difficult is because one of the two partners is being difficult, mm. which is probably why they got divorced in the first place. And so an app may help, but only if you've got some, maybe some legal clout behind it or you're using open banking to say, that, you know, this partner who's claiming that she is earning nothing is in fact not telling the truth. <laughs> it can absolutely lend itself. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. I see a use case there. I mean, generally, I, I don't see like the revenue because the pre-revenue, for instance, right? I mean, they're in the Series A company. So like what Karina said for the long-term business, right? It kind of feels like um, should be a feature in uh, an all-compassing app rather than just a product on its own. I suppose the one anecdotal thing that I would throw into the mix, again, like based on a sample size of one, but I was speaking to somebody recently who was a co-parent and had had issues, um, I think, getting uh, you know access to, I think, financial support for her son to go to university because you have to provide all of your sort of financial information from both parents and, and her you know, partner, her previous partner wasn't wasn't cooperating. So I do think there is lots of areas where actually people, people who are co-parenting want to have separate finances. So the idea that you would both just happily be having to Revolut accounts and you're sort of you're sharing your information, you're in the same space. I, I feel like people, once they separate, want to be separate. And so the idea that you can keep your bank over here and I'll keep my bank over here and there's a sort of mediation in between, a financial mediation in between, I think I think is interesting. As I take your points on board that, you know, how do they make money and, and is this that differentiating? But I, I feel, from what I've heard, I feel like it's, it is such a traumatic financial situation that I feel that there are definitely going to be journeys and features that will be very unique. And if they get incorporated into another bank in, in the future, then, then great. But I still think there'll be that interest in having something that is independent and is separate from, you know, where I keep my main money and where you keep your main money. Yeah, kids, what do you think about like the collected credit cards that they plan to make money from? Because, I mean, you mentioned being that mediation between different bank accounts. But, you know, having a collected credit card, I think it actually defeats that purpose. Um, I think if it's maybe a credit card that's coming from like a pot that's in the onward. I mean, I I probably should stop because I'm probably going to end up just like ranting on about their potential roadmap. But I mean, I could see that if, you know, if you agree in advance that you're going to put X amount of money into a pot, which is, for, for example, your child's school related costs and then you've got a card and I've got a card again that's that for to me if it's if you're putting money into a somewhere that's neutral it's very different to if you know if if you're giving me a, a card to your bank account and again like I feel that there, it's a kind of a degree of shared experience but with a degree of separation so I can imagine those again it depends on how they design it and how they implement it but I can I can imagine journeys that would be quite different. And it also is going to depend on the on the behaviour of the of the of the two partners because you know imagine you do have this shared credit card and the partner you're divorcing or separated from goes and spends a whole bunch of money on alcohol, clothing, whatever, not for the child. Proving the point to the lawyer, right? (laughs) Here is a bank statement. (laughs) All right. Well, we need to wrap up this story. I think there's going to be an awful lot of people listening to this who are themselves in this kind of situation thinking, brilliant, this is what I need. It's not going to fix all the problems. If you've got a very difficult partner, it's a nightmare. But this could help. And yeah, Kate, I, I share your your positivity this I, there's a definite problem here karina is is this the right solution but certainly wish them luck because there's a lot of people who need something to help with this okay 
Now for the section of the show we're calling Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Kate, do you want to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. So this story comes from Finextra and that's that Bank of Ireland is rolling out biosourced cards. So Bank of Ireland has begun rolling out biosourced debit and credit cards across its entire cards portfolio. These are available for both personal and business customers. The card is made from 84% biosourced renewable materials such as field corn. It takes just six months to decompose, unlike its plastic equivalent, which takes around 400 years. When the full portfolio of cards is switched to biosourced cards, a project expected to be completed by 2026, Bank of Ireland predicts it will save 17 tonnes of CO2 and 4.48 tonnes of plastic. That's equivalent to over 160,500ml plastic bottles per year. The biosourced cards will be provided to all new customers. Existing customers will have their cards replaced as their old cards expire. I mean... I really am very curious to know what a card made out of field corn feels like. I also had to Google what field corn is, which is deeply shameful given that half my relatives are farmers. Um, but I don't think they listen to the podcast, so I'm probably <laughs> probably safe. Um, but that aside, I think what I enjoy most about this story is how obvious and common sense it's now starting to feel for big corporations to be taking these kinds of steps to reduce plastic usage you know on its own it's kind of you know a nice thing for bank of ireland to do like the numbers sound big but actually in the global scheme of things that's really not that much of a plastic impact i think you know uh, glastonbury got rid of plastic and i think they would have reduced more plastic usage in one music festival than this will um but it sort of feels like the drip 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 of a new normal that you know, where everyone is expected to do more. And I think that's what we need to really move the dial on, on global warming. So I'm excited about that. Yep. Always happy to see people getting rid of single-use plastics. Capital Bank of Jordan has launched a new mobile banking app powered by Codebase. Um, Capital Bank of Jordan has tapped Codebase Technologies to launch a new mobile banking app. The two firms have worked together to develop a widget-based mobile app for the bank's customers, described as the first of its kind for the Middle East and North Africa region. Through the new digital offering, Capital Bank of Jordan says it aims to enhance customer engagement and acquisition to boost its market share and drive growth across the organization. Codebase and Capital Bank previously collaborated on the launch of Jordan's first digital Digital bank Blink earlier this year. Um, I thought it was an interesting, interesting story. I thought was particularly interesting was the way that Codebase and Capital Bank seem to have been able to do this very quickly on the back of the work they'd previously done. So clearly a lot of hard work going into um, rethinking and rebuilding digital systems at Capital Bank of Jordan. So uh, very exciting to see that. Um, and always good to see new, better, smarter digital propositions available around the world. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week, looking at a more light-hearted story from the last week, which is that British actor Simon Callow has sat down for a spooky story time to warn Brits about different types of fraud. So the BAFTA, which is the British... What is it? British Amateur? No, British Association of Film and Television Awards, something like that. Uh, the BAFTA nominated actor Simon Callow has sat down for a spooky story time to warn Brits about different types of scams and frauds they could fall foul of. The 73 year old star has taken on a new role as he teams up with bank Nat West to share a series of horror stories based on real life scams and the people who have fallen victim to them. It comes as a poll of 2,000 UK adults revealed that millions have been targeted by or fallen foul of fraudsters, with more than a third having sent money to someone they've met online. Nat West has partnered with Callow on the release of The Scammer House of Horrors, a free downloadable audiobook that aims to warn the nation about the dangers of fraud this Halloween. Let's hear a little clip of Simon Callow from the Nat West series on YouTube. Welcome, dear reader, to a tale of the darkest kind. What you're about to discover will disturb, unnerve, and unsettle you. Take heed, because evil lurks amongst us in the most unexpected of places. And this story, most sinister, should serve as caution. Prepare yourself for an account so dreadful. You'll never trust another soul again. Hannah put down the holiday brochure and sighed. She'd never be able to afford a break with her friends. It just wasn't fair. So do, do things like this raise public awareness or is this just a bit of um, a bit of Halloween fun? What do you, what do you all think? 
Um, I think personally, it seems like a creative use of events calendar, I guess, to raise awareness of a very, very important message. Um, will it completely eliminate fraud? Unfortunately, no. But, you know, as any educational message, it's repetition, 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 if we need to wrap it into a Halloween or, or a horror story. So be it, right? And then let's repurpose at the Christmas theme and Easter theme, and then let's continue with that. Um, you know, I, I, from my personal experience, unfortunately, my partner got scammed as well. And you know, it's it's definitely you see. Um, and also, I saw an interview actually with with Kala where he was um, just explaining a little bit how he got involved into this campaign, where he almost fell a victim of uh, of a fraud as well. And unfortunately, we see that um, just from my experience that. You know, people are becoming more aware once they actually have unfortunately been victims of it. So um, let's hope that again on the point of repetition and talking about it, let's just make sure that the message is always there. Um, but again, uh, you know, from that perspective, creative use, um, really love the listening of the voice and the story to it. Will it solve? No. I think that will always be a, a part of the uh, the bad side of the story that I guess we'll always have to deal with. Um, but yeah, a very interesting to, interesting approach. Tage, what, what do you think? Um, obviously, there's scams in Nigeria just as much as in, in the UK and elsewhere. Do, do, do you think celebrity endorsements like this sort of help? Um, does this help to spread awareness? Have you seen sort of good campaigns in, in Nigeria to make people aware of fraud? Um, okay, off the top of my head, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the Halloween, you know, it is kind of you know, makes a lot of sense, right? Kind of passing the message during this period. Uh, unfortunately, we do not celebrate Halloween here. Recently, we have been right, just more like an adopted, you know, celebration. But traditionally, no. Uh, so, I mean, but regarding your question, there are cases where you know um, instances where fraud has happened where celebrities have spoken against it, right? Right, um, but to probably make, you know, something like um, Simon, yeah. I, I don't think something like that has been done. Maybe just, maybe it has, but I can just think of one right now, right? But I, I like the way he, he passed the message. I, uh, I figure it's um, if Nigerian celebrities should do, you know, pass the message against fraud, it should be in that manner. Let's have a final quick round on what's your favorite horror movie or scary story? Um, Kate, do you have a favourite horror movie or scary story? I don't. I don't really like horror films. It really winds winds my partner up because he loves horror films, and I'm just like, I just can't be bothered. Like, I just, I feel, when I'm watching a film, I want to just have a nice time. I don't want to be terrified. I quite enjoy suspense films, so maybe like, I don't know, like, you know, um, The Sixth Sense and that kind of like vibe. Like that. That's I'm okay with that sort of level. But anything like properly gory and horrible, then no, thank you. Karina, do you have a favourite scary story? Would Wirecard documentary count as a scary story? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think so on a fintech podcast. Yeah, I think that one could be topical. Um, like similarly, like Kate, the horror horror movie is not my genre, but uh, Get Out was a good one. Uh, class is a horror, but I actually I actually could uh, see it through it, so it was good. Tage, uh, favorite horror film or scary story? Currently, actually, was spot on. I wanted to say Get Out, right? Uh, yeah, but it's not like horror you know, kind of suspense, thriller kind of stuff. I don't really <laughs> like horror movies. Yeah, I, I recently watched <laughs> The Watcher. The Watcher is kind of good too on Netflix. So, oh, yeah, no, no spoilers, that, please. I'm only just starting to watch They all it. die. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't uh, tell me that. <laughs> There's a Watcher. <laughs> all right. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, Benjamin, what's yours? You can't get out of it that easily. Yeah. Well, I... I have to say this, I'm, um, I'm with the three of you in not being a big fan of um, horror movies or scary stories. Um, I like that one with Jack Nicholson. Uh, what's that one where he's up in, that, up in the New York mountains? Um, the Shining? What? The, the Shining. Shining. Yeah, but, but I hate horror movies. They scare the life out of me. Um, I get forced to watch them by my wife, who I love, apart from when she makes me watch horror movies. <laughs> all right let's wrap up this week's uh, news show thank you all so much for being fantastic uh, guests it's been a pleasure having all of you on the show where can people find out a bit more about you Karina um, yeah you can find myself personally on LinkedIn if you want to learn about all things open banking or talk about that please come to yapoli.com Kate uh, I'm on LinkedIn Kate Moody or on Twitter at k8.moody and Tage. Okay, so this is going to be a hard one. Um, on LinkedIn, 
I'm not so serious there. <laughs> but yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, sometimes I share my articles, you know, about African tech in general. So I teach Kenel Kafor um, on LinkedIn. Then on Twitter, where I have more followers, um, I actually rant about football, you know, um, and <laughs> music. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can actually find my work there too. Um, so it's um, U-L-O-N-N-A-Y-A. That's my um, traditional name, Lonaya. Um, so yeah, you can actually actually type teach too and you, you find me there too. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, or you can find out more about us on 11fs.com. So thank you all very much for listening. Uh, please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you all so much for being with us and goodbye. Goodbye.